Welcome back to The Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And we are rereading our way through all 21 novels in Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey Maturin canon. And we are getting into the depths of the far side of the world. Mike, can you remind us how deep were the depths last week? How deep are they going to get this week? Well, we had some pretty deep depths last week, or at least as far as dinners on board the ship went. Sure. We had uh, Jack, as they as they sailed off in pursuit of the Norfolk, Jack had a dinner for his officers, and we learned a good bit about whaling, dangerous whales, and going around the horn. The men were all bled as they crossed into the tropics. The biters were bit, that is, two sharks were killed. The former defenders' men kind of reported their unhappiness in, in a strange appearance. And Hollum appeared to have designs on the gunner's wife, Mrs. Horner. Now, this week, the surprise continues on trying to intercept the Norfolk. The weather, of course, does not cooperate, and they risk low water in order to save time. Jack suspects there's something going on with the crew. Stephen worries about Diana and contemplates honesty, adultery, and marriage. And Jack worries about the crew's animosities and what might happen when they cross the line. So, Mike, this is going to be a fascinating chapter, I think, because there's lots in it that we've seen before. We've been sailing down the Central Atlantic before. We've been in the tropics before. Um, we're going to say shortly we've we've even crossed the line before. So there's a lot that's kind of familiar. It's, this is almost like a chapter of easing into what we hope is stable family life aboard the Surprise. Let, let's see. The first scene that we get, in fact, is a scene that I think we've had before, which is Jack and Stephen swimming over the side in hot weather and calm conditions now that the sharks have gone. And meanwhile, also, the Reverend Martin is in one of the boats being pulled along behind the Surprise, and he's taking nature samples in his net. And I think, Mike, that to begin with, everybody's spirits are high this chapter. Jack notices in this kind of happy offhand way, he says, now the surprise with, with we three in the water and towing behind the boats. Now the surprise has no one to direct her worldly or her physical or even her spiritual affairs. Ha 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 says Jack. And nothing seems likely to burst his bubble at the moment. Three ships are spotted, which I think gives us a moment of, of pause, but we don't have to wait long before we discover that as Jack and Stephen pull back to Martin's boat so that he can return to the ship quickly. Jack climbs the main top and confirms these ships are homeward bound Indiamen. And uh, hearing that there's a woman on deck, of course, Jack sends for his pants and he gives word to his cook to prepare a special dinner because he's already spied who these Indiamen are and he knows the captains. Two of the three captains had faced the French with Jack in the Indian Ocean. Uh, Mike, this will be back in HMS Surprise, I guess. These convoy merchantmen had faced the French Admiral Linois along with Jack, and they give Jack over dinner this news about the, the belt of calm and variable winds somewhere between the southeast and the northeast trade winds. This belt was wider than they had ever experienced, over 500 miles. And Jack's now wondering whether he should continue to head for the Cape Verde Islands to get water, take water on board, or change course and save several days, but taking a chance on the collection of water from rainstorms. And he 
can't absolutely take it for granted that rainfall is a certainty, but he absolutely can understand that there's going to be heat and humidity from the doldrums. Right. And this, you know, this kind of problem just presses on his mind. And later he and Steven are trying to play music together. Jack's mind has is just totally taken up with this problem and he's actually playing the wrong piece. And, and Stephen calls him yeah. out pretty strongly. <laughs> and, and Jack apologizes for what he calls gathering moss. But in that moment, he makes his decision, runs up on deck, changes course and comes back and reports to Stephen there. We may die of thirst in the next few weeks if it don't rain, but at least we shall not miss the Norfolk. And then, you know, hit with a bout of superstition, he adds, I mean, we're somewhat less likely to miss her now, he says, as he touches wood there. And <laughs> Stephen observes that you know, their, their minds really are not in the music and says you know, he wants to go off and tell Martin that he won't be seeing Cape Verde. And Jack wonders if he's offended Stephen. And I love Stephen's gentle ways here. Never in life, soul, said Stephen. I was uneasy in my mind before ever we sat down. And for once, music has not answered. Now, a lot is familiar, but I don't recall another time when music Mm -hmm. didn't answer. So for me, this was kind of, that's not a good sign. (laughs) No, it's not. Oh, Stephen. He's clearly worried though, right? He's been cleaning out his cabin. He had been looking through and uh, and discarding these letters from the well-wisher, the person who keeps writing to him to say that Diana is cheating on him. I think we've had those letters now for two or three books. Right. He had had a dream about the situation and he realized that from Diana's point of view, it does appear that he, Stephen, has been, to use the phrase, traipsing about with Laura Fielding in Malta. And all of this realization, I think, is making him more anxious and less convinced that the letter that he sent with Ray would convince Diana. Not just whether it'll get to Diana, but whether it'll be convincing once she reads it. And he realizes that his explanation to Diana had been, as O'Brien writes, necessarily incomplete and in some respects quite false. For now, in his present low state, it was borne in upon him that falsity sometimes had the same penetrating quality as truth. Both were perceived intuitively, and Diana was intuition's favourite child. Oh, gosh. Speaking of this being a bit like a turn around the ocean in the HMS Surprise, I can remember Stephen at pretty much the same spot in the ocean, Mike, having these premonitions and worries about his relationship with Diana, and this is not a good place. Stephen goes on deck hoping to find Mr. Martin and speaks with Moat instead in the darkness. And we find out that Martin is in the last boat being towed. And so Stephen decides not to go out there since the wind is picking up. And he says this very ominous phrase, Mike, bad news will always keep. Yeah, I, I, I always love Stephen. He's a bit of my life coach here. So this, this, this news has served <laughs> me well recently. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. And he's he's thinking, you know what, I'm not going to go all the way out there on that rough sea to to tell Martin about this. But he is worried also about Martin. And Moet assures him that it's all going to be good. And, and Moet actually quotes Homer about this great speed that the the surprise is now making there. They, they've been stuck here and, and now they're making a little speed. And that gets Stephen and Moet talking about Homer's poetry. And Stephen loves Homer, but he says he likes the Odyssey, but he doesn't care much for Ulysses. And his rationale is, and this is Stephen, he lied excessively, it seems to be. And if a man lies beyond a certain point, a sad falseness enters into him and he's no longer amiable. 
Stephen spoke with some feeling. His work in intelligence had called for a great deal of duplicity, perhaps too much, Mm. Mm, no longer amiable. So here we have kind of O'Brien letting us in a little bit on what's going on inside Stephen's head here. And this, you know, this whole thing about duplicity, it's long been a concern about Stephen. And it's something that in the past he's been pretty touchy about. You know, he used to tell Jack, you know, don't call me out on this stuff. This is just part of what I have to do. But now it almost seems like he's a little more insightful about himself and its impact on others, particularly Diana. Yeah, and this this idea of not being amiable anymore harks back to the previous chapter, Mike, and this the, the the ventriloquist voice condemning the people of the surprise for being not mickable. Ah, there's there's a really deep seated worry here about whether they're all going to be able to get along. Right. Having had a bit of a downer on the world of Ulysses and deception, and, and by the way, Mike, this all harks back to the conversations we've had before with Brian Wilson about as a guest about the impact of the life, the deceptive life of, his, of an intelligence officer. In contrast to this, Stephen says of Homer, but the Iliad of God love his soul never was such a book as the Iliad. And by the way, I can remember reading this and thinking, oh, this sounds great. I'm going to go and get a translation of the Iliad and read it. And Mike, it's still on my Kindle. I still not read it to this day, but I possess a copy of the Iliad in a, in a 20th century translation. Anyhow, Stephen loves the Iliad. He loves the, the heroic scale. He loves how Achilles and Priam are both doomed and know it and are noble to the end. Met a few characters in the canon that have exactly that same view of life. Right. The book, he says, is full of death, but oh so living. And after discussing lots of the things that people have read into Homer's different epics, Stephen says to Moet, but as far as I know, not one of the inky boobies ever saw what is as clear as the sun at midday, that as well as being the great epic of the world, the Iliad is a continued outcry against adultery. And Mike, this is a very, very doomy perception of not only what's going on, I think, in his life as perceived by Diana, but I wonder also if it's a foreshadowing of people's realization of what's happening in the ship. He goes on to talk about adultery. He says, hundreds, nay, thousands of heroical young men killed, Troy drowning in blood and flames, Andromache's child dashed from the battlements and she led away to carry water for Greek women, the great city raised and depopulated, all, all from mere adultery. And Mike, that saves me reading the first three or four books of the Iliad, I think. Little catch up there. And he goes on, she did not even like the worthless fellow at the end. James Mowat, there is nothing to be said for adultery. And Moet agrees in the darkness, he says, no, sir, but smiles, thinking about Stephen's alleged or presumed adultery with Laura Fielding, before going on, I have sometimes thought of giving him a hint, but these things are too delicate, and I doubt it would answer. And Mike, I remember it just, it was just beginning to dawn on me (laughs) that Moet here is not talking (laughs) about any of the characters in the Iliad not talking about anybody else, but talking about somebody closer to home. Right. And before Stephen can ask, who is this him? 
they're interrupted by a messenger saying, Mr. Martin is hailing from the launch. Well, I, I think it's a good thing that we've all been saved because, you know, I think so many of us have copies of the Iliad and the Odyssey in multiple translations up on the shelf <laughs> waiting to be dealt through. But now at least we have the Netflix epic Troy that we can, right, right. <laughs> we can come back and, and see it in the comic book version here. So, well, you know, yeah, who is this him? And, and you know, we're going to have to come back to that here. So in the meantime, they bring Martin aboard because Martin was getting really worried that the sea was getting rough and it was way too choppy. He couldn't do any more observations on all this, you know, phosphorescent wildlife down there. And Martin, of course, is praying and says that he's praying that it will get calmer again. <laughs> and we know that all the surprises are praying for stronger winds and not losing the trades. And sure enough, uh, the trade winds die and they enter into the doldrums. And the next day, Martin comes up and he takes off his usual good coat. They're being invited to dine with the captain. And he takes off his good coat. And Stephen, who O'Brien writes, whose spirit of contradiction was more lively than usual. And, and it's because <laughs> he's been worrying about Diana. He's been really wanting this laudanum bath. And he's been up all night. And he tells Martin, that the apparent relief, that is the relief from taking off his coat, is a mere illusion of vulgar error. And we've heard Stephen tell people this before, that, you know, in, in hot weather, in cold weather, your body will self-regulate it, all this clothing thing. It's just ridiculous. But um, they're going back and forth. Stephen's being obstinate. And, you know, Martin uses this term doldrums and Stephen's arguing as to what that means and what Martin thinks it means. And they decide to get Jack to be the tiebreaker at dinner there. And Jack is now thrown into a little bit of a mini moral quandary himself. He has great respect for the cloth. He's feeling guilty because he doesn't invite Martin to dinner often enough because you know, he feels a little constrained in his presence. He stopped inviting him to play music because Martin really wasn't that good at music. And, and now he figures, well, I've got to help Martin out so that even though he knows Stephen's right, he kind of starts to side with Martin. And finally, he, um, he he just has to get himself out of all of this. And so he starts talking about how they're going to be putting a sail over the side today for people who can't swim so that they can kind of play in the cooler water, but uh, in the shallows, if you will. And, and that leads to a discussion about why seamen and fishermen don't learn to swim. And Poolings notes how many people Jack has saved from drowning over the years. And then uh, you know, Jack doesn't like all this attention on himself. So he asks Hollum if he swims and Hollum says that he doesn't, but he does plan to join the others in the water today. It's funny, isn't it? There's a little awkward throwaway reply from Hollum at the end of this conversation. And it's not so much about the swimming. It's about Hollum joining in. Right. Ah, every little signal we get about Hollum is about his connectedness or not to different, different parts of the crew. I think we have we have worries building upon worries here for Holland. Meanwhile, that slight freshening of the breeze that Mr. Martin had had not prayed for uh, has gone, and they're becalmed. They're hot. The surprise is rocking enough on the water in the calm to make the defenders and Mrs. Lamb sick. The heat we learned makes the bilge water stink so much that Stephen Martin and the others far below can't sleep with the smell. And Mike, I, I think I remember when we chatted to John Bromley from Kimber's Men, the shanty band, he said that actually sailors used to like to sail on ships with smelly bilges because that 
meant that they leaked less and those less leaky ships had less water going through the bilges and that meant there was less pumping to do. So maybe that that note of reassurance is going to pass by Stephen and the others who are being stung out of their, uh, their bunks. Well, anyway, despite Stephen's earlier protest to Martin, and we hear this remark, theories crumble. Despite this, Stephen stops wearing his uniform and starts wearing an open banyan jacket. So the, the illusion the vulgar error is absolutely bought into now. It's so darn hot. The ship's water, lots of which they're having to use to soak the salt beef and make it edible, that's getting very low. And they have just one rainstorm, which itself only barely lasts long enough to get some very undrinkable tarry water off the sails. Even so, Jack, the very experienced blue water captain, has that stinky water barreled anyway, thinking that if they run out, they'll be glad to have even that and worse. Now, Jack's worrying about the water. He's worrying about the Norfolk getting past them. He's worried about the increased fighting and discontent between the defenders and the surprisers. And he worries that in the increased heat with all short tempers, the traditional roughhousing as they cross the line could turn deadly. And again, Mike, this is something that we've had in previous books as Jack's Aubrey's ships have headed south across the line. We've had a mention or two of crossing the line ceremony, but it's very telling that Jack thinks this ceremony, even itself, could turn deadly. He knows there's something in the air. He's noticed the way the crews look at one another. There's some secret, but he, Jack, doesn't know what it was. O'Brien and the audience, however, that he's talking to, we do know what the secret is, don't we? Right. O'Brien has told us that that everybody except for Mr. Horner, the gunner, and the chaplain and Jack know that Hollum and Mrs. Horner have been having this affair and, and they've gotten overconfident. They're now getting pretty risky, pretty strident and blatant. And and as a surprise is they really don't know Hollum or Mr. Horner. You know, they think Horner's somebody that you don't mess with. Hollum, they're still trying to make their mind up about. And both of these guys are strangers to the surprises. So they're watching for what they believe is going to be the coming explosion between them. Yeah. And that, that goes even further, I think, to explain Mowat's reluctance. The, the hymn that he mentioned a couple of paragraphs, of course, was right. uh, was Hollum. Hollum's a stranger and Mowat isn't going to risk goodwill and stability and peace for the sake of trying unsuccessfully to warn off a stranger. Well, they, they don't get any rain, but they do get flying fish. Yeah. And I think I think we've also seen this once before, right? And they decide to send boats out and catch whatever's chasing them. And, and they net several loads of bonito, a warm-blooded fish that ideally it, they can all prepare that without using any of this precious water. So they can hold off on the salted beef and they can use this fish. But Stephen notes that as a warm-blooded fish, they're a great promoter of Venus or an aphrodisiac. So you know, this may kind of, uh, right, right, speed things up again. And sure enough, right after that, O'Brien writes and tells us about the gunner coming up on deck, Hollum making his way quickly to the cabin that he's just vacated, and the gunner realizing that he's forgotten his handkerchief and turning around to go back. And we're just saved when Jack sees a coming squall and calls all hands to change the sails here in the face of this squall. So this you know, momentary catch when we think this is all going to come to a head and boom, 
Yeah, there's a lot going on here. In lots of other books by lots of other authors, this would have been a moment of you know high farce, bedroom doors open and shut and people going in and out. But it's written here in this very downbeat way. Mike, it made me feel really uneasy. I you was know, sitting uncomfortably in my in my chair as the as the as the watcher as the audience for all of this. We're thinking, you know, there, but for a few yards and a handkerchief, there could have been this really potentially deadly um, discovery and bust up. And O'Brien, of course, caps it with a with a squall that the the, the stormy weather is telling us how we should be feeling about this. Right, right. The squall hits. They collect. Eight days water in this squall, so really, really heavy rainfall. But the Jonah Hollam casts off the wrong line in the heat of all of this action, and they lose the rest. They could have had weeks of water, but because Hollam had his hand on the wrong rope, mm. they lose all but eight days. The oppressive heat returns, and all the water which soaked the ship to the bottom turns to mold. There's mold everywhere and on everything. And I guess this is this is not unfamiliar in humid climes like Florida, Mike. Right, right, very definitely. So Stephen suggests that he should join Jack in the main cabin for music that evening. I think there's a bit of a relief from all the humidity and the mold. It's the one nice remaining place on the ship. But Jack says no, he has to be on deck, urging the ship along. He says, by the combined effort of his will and his belly muscles, you will say it is buying a dog and barking at the stable door yourself. And like, we get this nice round of low-key Aubreyisms battered backwards and forwards between Stephen and Jack. Ah, the stable door after it is, after it is locked, said Stephen. And Jack, <laughs> Jack invites Stephen to use the cabin anyway or to invite Martin to play there with him. But Stephen refuses because he doesn't like the idea of being seen as a favourite. Mm. Instead, Stephen goes back to the gun room. We love a gun room. Goes back to the gun room to play to play cards. But Howard, the Marine officer, is learning to play the German flute. And Mike, here's yet another trope of the cannon put there to make us feel familiar, but also a little uneasy. We've got a Marine officer playing the German flute badly, of course. Right. And meanwhile, Moet is reading the Iliad to Honey. Moet and Honey are two poetically inclined lieutenants. Moet reading with immense relish, and Stephen just can't concentrate. So, all this familiar stuff going on, but beneath it all, there's this note of uncertainty. And we've got it, and Stephen's got it for sure. It's really hard to concentrate and feel at ease. Yeah, and and you know, with the tension sort of continues a little bit. Jack is on deck all night uh, because he, you know, the bottom line, he just knows the surprise better than anyone, and he can sail her better. Jack knows this, and the crew's watching Jack, and they're seeing that he is just like giving it every inch, calling the best helmsman up, regardless of what watch they're on. And they're convinced they must be running away from a superior force. Why are they driving so hard? And by noon the next day, by having driven her so hard and so continuously, they find the true trade win. And and that's it. Jack just goes to bed. He cancels the great gun exercise for the evening, announces that now he's got this win. He wants to slow down the next day and paint the surprise. And everybody's pretty shocked and surprised and wondering, you know, why isn't he going to take advantage of this win? He's driving like crazy to get here. And now that he's here, he wants to stop and paint when we're still 500 miles off the coast of Brazil. It's not like that many ships are going to see us. But everybody just says, yes, sir. Everybody except 
Stephen, Stephen asked him that night, you know, what, what are you doing? Why are you stopping? You know, why aren't we pressing on and crossing the line? And Jack says, nope, I'm going to cross the line on Sunday. And then we get this classic piece of canon dialogue. You you have to deliver this, Ian. This has got music. <laughs> it's, it's got all the great things oh, that you introduced me to. It's great. So Jack says, so tomorrow you should be quite near your old friends, the St. Paul's Rocks. Is that right, says Stephen? What joy? I must tell poor Martin. Tell, what was the rondo you were playing? And Jack replies, Malta. Malta? Yes, you know, Malta Vivace. You must have heard of Malta Vivace. Oh, ha, ha, ha. Anyway, the, Jack lands this really terrible pun. When at last, he said, when at last he had had his laugh out, he wiped his eyes and wheezed. It came to me in a flash, a brilliant illumination, like when you fire off blue lights. Lord, ain't I a rattle. I shall set up for a wit yet and make my fortune. Malta Vivace. I must tell Sophie I'm writing her a letter to be put aboard some homeward bound merchantman. If we meet one off Brazil next week, which is probable, Malta Vivace. Oh, dear me. And here we get a line from Stephen in reply, not at all impressed with this. With his very lame dad joke. He who would pun would pick a pocket. (laughs) And Stephen goes on. And that miserable quibble is not even a pun, but a vile clench. Who is this Malta? He asked, picking up the neatly written score. Johann Melchior Malta, a German of the last age, said Jack. Our parson at home thinks the world of him. I copied this piece, mislaid it, and found it ten minutes ago, tucked behind our Corelli in C major. Shall we attempt the Corelli now, it being such a triumphal day? Well, they may or they may not, but let's have a little dig into our friend Malta here. First of all, Mike, a vile clench. I mean, we almost don't need an explanation about what a vile clench is. That's a word that sounds like it must be bad. This is... Another word for a pun, right? Right. I mean, it's funny because, you know, now we like clench, you clench your jaw or, you know, you you clench something. But uh, one Irish journalist, Jamie O'Neill, has said that, you know, it's kind of used back in that day as almost humor that makes us squeeze our butt cheeks together. It's so bad. So he brings the two clenches together. It's so bad that it's good. Um, Dryden, our old friend Dryden, Talking about Shakespeare said his comic wit degenerating into clenches. <laughs> and uh, Pope had once lamented one poor word a hundred clenches make. And the Irish are famous for this and, and do it so well. I, I just love it. Like you said, I guess it evolved when we weren't quite so word and world worthy into just bad dad jokes. <laughs> There's no just about dad jokes. There ain't no dad, there ain't no bad joke like a dad joke. That's it. Anyhow, meanwhile, the, the, the subject of this pun, Johann Melchior Malta, uh, 1696 to 1765. So when Jack means of the last age, he means that Melchior Malta was about 70 to 100 years before um, the time of the books. And he was pretty close musically and geographically and otherwise to Johann Sebastian Bach, as we'll come to in a minute. And the the play of words here is between the word molto, meaning much or very, and molter, which is the name Johann Melchior Malta. So molto vivace, very vivace, very lively, is the Italian tempo marking 
for a piece of music. So molto vivace means very lively. And this is part of the traditional vocabulary of expression and tempo markings that you have in classical music. Vivace means lively, allegro means fast, moderato means moderately fast, adagio means slowly, and so on. And molto vivace turns via this dreadful pun into molteur vivace. And actually, we've talked about Johann Sebastian Bach, German Bach in the past. He was a close associate of the Bach family, this guy Malta. There's even a theory that the St. Luke Passion, believed to have been written by uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, might have been written actually by Malta. And then completed and edited to some extent by Bach and the and the Bach Junior CPE Bach. To what extent any of that hangs together, I really don't know. But there's a really close connection between this guy Malta and O'Brien's and Stevens and Jack's favorite composer, German Bach. Well, I think with with all the Bachs and the clenches and the puns, <laughs> perhaps we should take a break and maybe go Google our favorite dad jokes. <laughs> If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. We hope you enjoyed your mid-episode break with Corelli or whoever was keeping you company. Um, mm-hmm. Having hoped, I think, that the next day would turn out to be triumphal. We're let down gently by O'Brien as he says that the next day was not triumphal. This was going to be the day that Jack said the ship and all the boats are getting painted. Now, this is a tricky moment for Stephen and for Martin as they try to look out over at St. Paul's Rocks where Stephen was once marooned, but they're constantly being asked to move. Until eventually, I think with with a certain amount of exasperation, <laughs> midshipman Calamy helps them to get up in the rigging so their feet and legs and bodies and persons are not in the way of all of this painting. So Martin gets the the, the first highlight. He's really delighted to see his first blue-faced booby, aren't we? All pleased when we see our first blue-faced booby. And asks if the captain might let them go ashore. And Mike... It, it, we're going to hear a bit of a different perspective on the botanizing, shore-going thing from Stephen here. So far in this book, and certainly so far in this chapter, Stephen's been sort of loud and proud with his banter that he aims squarely at Jack, yanking Jack's chain about all the tyranny and oppression and forgetfulness of science and botany and philosophy and what you know what this means for Jack's character as a leader. Stephen's been willing to dish it out to Jack, but now that he's just with Martin, he's a bit more circumspect. And he explains quite calmly why they're not going to get to go to St. Paul's Rocks. The only thing he says that the captain is more indifferent to than birds is beetles. And then, Mike, he reminds us why I think we're supposed to feel a bit uneasy about being near to St. Paul's Rocks and being close to crossing the line. Because he tells him about the episode back in HMS Surprise, when James Nichols rode Stephen out there on a Sunday wanting to talk about Nichols's inability to make peace with his wife, which is a really awkward 
sort of pre-shadowing of what's going on on the surprise right now. Right. And most likely, we thought at the time, Nichols letting himself then be drowned on the rock in this great big storm squall that came in because of his frustration and his depression at this lack of success in his marriage. And we've got not only marital disarray on the ship between the gunner and the gunner's wife and Hollam, we've got the disarray between Stephen and Diana and this grave misunderstanding or even worse. And Stephen gets to thinking about how difficult marriage is. And of course, he, he likes to imagine how wouldn't the world be simpler if we were like the animals? And he re- he reflects that maybe there are some lizards that can reproduce with no sexual congress. And maybe maybe that would be a quieter and more philosophical way to go about your love life. Right. You know, Stephen's thinking about this stuff and, and he has told him a bit about Nichols. And then Martin kind of jumps in to tell Stephen that Actually, he, Martin, while they're on the whole thing about, you know, wives and relationships, he's got this attachment to a parson's daughter. The daughter, it was the sister of a a fellow botanist at school that Martin had. And Martin has always had this attachment for her and was now thinking that maybe he would ask her to marry him. That, you know, he'd wanted to do it for a long time, but he didn't have any kind of any means, any position, said that, you know, her girlfriends, he was always afraid that they would look down at Martin because the Parsons family were, you know, really above him in worldly standing. But with his naval pay, he's thinking about writing to ask her to marry him. And he asked Stephen to read his letter and for Stephen to give him back Stephen's candid opinion. And Stephen reads this letter and he's thinking to himself, and O'Brien describes this, he says, Martin was a thoroughly amiable man a man of wide reading, but when he came to write, he mounted upon a pair of stilts, unusually lofty stilts, and staggered along at a most ungracious pace with an occasional awkward lurch into colloquialism, giving a strikingly false impression of himself. And I just love it. this is This is Stephen thinking, so we do get these great adjectives. And everything, but, but the whole scene here about a writer like that and and I could kind of see myself doing the same thing here. And and Stephen's having a hard time because he likes Martin. Martin clearly likes Stephen. That's why he's given him this letter and okay. let him into his confidence. So Stephen starts by saying, you know, it's very elegant. And, and he was sure it would touch any lady's heart. But that he just thinks Martin's approach is really wrong. That Martin is apologizing throughout. He's too humble. You know, it almost sounds like the, the, the commander in chief telling Jack how to write up his reports. You know, you need to blow your own trumpet a little bit more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Stephen tells Martin, he says, I'm trying to remember this quote. This is not quite right, but it's something along the lines of even the most virtuous woman despises an impotent man. And surely, says Stephen, all self-deprecation runs along the same unhappy road. So he's telling her, you know, telling Martin. Don't put yourself down here. Just ask her the question directly, you know, very clearly, very succinctly, very directly. And then you can include a second half a page that lists your income in, you know, in case, you know, she needs to show that to her girlfriends. <laughs> this this is great advice. This is fantastic relationship advice coming from a guy <laughs> who could never have listened to a word of that kind of advice coming from anybody else but hey well I- not only that but i think if we if we asked diana how steven is at uh, at proposals <laughs> he, he would not get very high marks <laughs> 
So Martin thanks him, but you know, Stephen can tell looking at Martin, it's clear that Martin does not agree with this and is going to stick with his own style of writing. And then O'Brien shares a little thing. He says that Martin had shared the letter because he esteems Stephen and that he was looking for praise, not, <laughs> not a candid opinion. He was looking for praise and perhaps a couple of good phrases to add in. And O'Brien writes, for like most normally constituted writers, Martin had no use for any candid opinion that was not wholly favorable. And so I, I wonder if O'Brien <laughs> writing to the critics of the world, just so you know, when you're reviewing my materials or talking to me about it, this is what I want to hear. So I don't know if this is O'Brien having a go at himself and other writers. I love this. Well, it does seem to be something that Brian was notorious for, that is to say, <laughs> being very touchy about anything that was not unstinting praise. But it's, you know, he, he does this a lot, doesn't he? He has a little go at the the foibles and the mindset of, of people who write for a living. And there's got to be a bit of self-mockery in there. And even if he couldn't do self-mockery in life, he can manage to do self-mockery in his books. And that's okay. I like that. Yeah. It, it, it also reminds me, this, this idea of giving advice about making a plain written marriage proposal. This reminds me of something that Sophie, I can't remember if she said it or thought it to herself. Right. But back in HMS Surprise, she was agonizing over the, the twists and turns between Stephen and Diana getting together. And she wrote, how little learning does for a man. He knows almost nothing. He had but to say, pray be so good as to marry me last summer. And she, Diana, would have cried, oh, yes, if you please. I told him so, says Sophie. Right. <laughs> so maybe this good advice that's coming from Stephen is actually good advice that's coming from Sophie. There you go. This seems like it could have been awkward territory for an extended conversation, but they change the topic and they get round once again to Holland's beautiful singing voice. We we talk also about life as a naval chaplain from Martin. We talk about a night life as a naval surgeon as well. And we talk about what's going on aboard the surprise. And Martin gets around to the topic of the punishment that he's aware of and that he's witnessed some of. He says he likes how there is so little starting, so little physical punishment. Um, and apart from the defenders and their problems and their attitude and behavior, there would likely be none. And Martin does say that the, the language that people use towards each other can be a little bit harsh. He, Martin, would see it as harsh if it was addressed to him. And Stephen assures Martin that the surprises prize Jack because he's a resolute fighting captain. They would prize him even more if he were a severe, as Stephen says, a severe, unjust, tyrannical, somber, revengeful, malice-bearing. But he is none of those things. And again, Stephen talking to Jack in the last couple of chapters has been pretty on the nose, but now talking about Jack to somebody else, I think he's much more sincere. And he's saying, do you know what? Jack is a really good example of a humane naval captain. Martin agrees. I think he accepts the idea that Jack's of good character. Right. And he just still regrets that the life of a naval naturalist is 999 opportunities lost and one that might perhaps be seized. And Martin's worried about what he's heard about the crossing of the line ceremony that's due to come the next day. He's a bit put out then that they can heave to and stop for the crossing the line ceremony, but they can't heave to today to do a bit of botanizing. And I think he's got a point. 
Right. And it's interesting, you know, Stephen's point that, that that surprises love Jack because of who he is. Even if he were all these other awful things, they would still love him, but he's not. And and the next day gives us an example of that. They cross the line. Remember, just as Jack had planned it, as he explained to Stephen on a Sunday. And so here's the ship. Church is rigged. Everybody's in their best clothes. There's new paint that hasn't dried everywhere. There's new tar laid out, you know, that would get on these clothes. There's a very grave sermon. And, you know, most of this crew, uh, even though it's an international crew, most of them are good English Anglicans. And, and so they're now in mind of home. And everything is kind of brought together the way Jack's brought it together to have a very muted ceremony. And Jack had said, you know, he knew that as captain, he could just say, we're not doing this you know, because he's concerned, but he said he would never be that kind of guy. And so it's, it's a great example of this. So instead he sets it up so that everybody checks everybody else. He doesn't have to do any of it. Anytime somebody starts to get out of hand, they're told to mine the paintwork. And uh, so I, I thought this was brilliant. I, I thought this, Jack had set this up beautifully. And I thought, ah, note, note to self in my management endeavors. This is, this is the way to go. Well done, Jack. Yeah. If you think the family are calling around and things could get out of hand, then have them call around on a Sunday and paint everything. Right, right. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's brilliant man management, isn't it? Really good leadership. Very kind of soft power by Jack. Absolutely. It's interesting that this crossing the line ceremony, we've heard of it a few times before in the canon. There have been other voyages where we've gone south and crossed the line, and we've had mention of this ceremony. So what's sort of meant to happen at least in the royal navy tradition is that captain neptune comes aboard accompanied by various kind of secondary deities who are all members of the ship's company dressed up and you know playing a part um a badger bag who knows what badger bag is meant to be and amphitrite and venus and they all come and they're basically this is an initiation ceremony for anybody who has not yet crossed the line and if you have crossed the line then you're an initiate and you get to take part in this kind of mm, hazing i don't know if you'd call it low-key hazing because it's not that low-key given that they get either soaped or tarred and then scraped with a barrel hoop and then dunked <laughs> but this is absolutely still part of the life of a, of a royal navy seaman part of the life of most navies as well crossing the line if you've never done it before is a big deal and there's obviously a fine line between the sort of good-natured joshing and also a chance a little bit for the for the lower deck to take command of the affairs of the ship, you know, in the face of the officers, hazy line between that and outright roughhousing and abuse. As anybody who's ever been in a sports team or a frat house probably knows, there's a fine line there. Right, and we've seen lots of this stuff before in other books, but it's been a while since we witnessed it and had it explained in so much detail. But the fact that Jack's worried about it is a real sign, I think, that he thinks that the the family of HMS Surprise is out of order. You know, I think we can all think of occasions when a family celebration might in good times be just everybody's together, we're going to have fun. A family celebration when everybody's not okay is a time when you're thinking, oh, let's be careful what we say. Let's not sit her next to him. Let's put them over there. Let's not put them in the same room as alcohol. You know, we're cautious and anxious about family ceremonies when it's when it's not okay. And I think that's how Jack is seeing this crossing the line ceremony. And of course, everybody's thought about line crossing is i think also colored by the recollection that we've got that in back in hms surprise it happened just after nichols had gone ashore at st paul's rocks and died 
So dark tones here. Yeah, I, I, I definitely could feel that somber tone pulled back from surprise to here again. The last time somebody had just died, this time Jack's worried somebody might die. Ooh, yeah. take a breath here. But five days later, they raise Cape St. Rock. And so it's dawn and they can, you know, way off, they can see the coast and they're kind of, they've reached their destination. And now they got to figure out, hey, wait a minute, have the Norfolk beat us yet? You know, have they been through yet? So that's the big thing. Jack spreads out the barge and the launch, and they're all kind of cruising just barely in sight of each other so they can cover as much of the main shipping lanes as possible. And what they do see is the amiable Catherine of London headed home from the River Plate. Uh, you know, Jack, the captain, well, actually the master, I think, comes aboard with her papers, and, and, and he's pretty reluctant. He's afraid Jack, you know, this is a British Royal Navy vessel. This They might you know, press some of her men, but no, no, Jack's just being the guy Jack is. He's always very civil, very hospitable to the civilian ships. And uh, the guy leaves a little drunk, very happy. And Jack's got what he wants. He's got news that no, they had not heard of the Norfolk, not in any of the ports they've been in. And they're quite happy to take the surprises mail back to England because they're headed straight there right now. Uh, over time, they, they stop other ships, other barks, and get the same news. And there's a friend of Mr. Allen's, a local pilot, who Allen had actually kind of recuperated in this guy's father's house back in his last days here. And pilot assures them, look, no man of war could have passed here without him knowing. So Jack is delighted. And he knows that, you know, regardless of the kind of winds that the Norfolk's had, if they just cruise out here for a week, they're going to find the Norfolk. It's going to be coming through. Now, Poolings tries to say, yeah, but wait, you know, what about our water? And, and Jack's kind of not hearing that. And so they cruise and they're hot and they're thirsty and it takes quite the toll. O'Brien tells us that Mrs. Horner loses her looks. Hollum's no longer singing. Everybody's too busy with this intense gunnery practice that Jack is having day and night to, to worry about the adulterers anymore. And they've gotten so good at their gunnery that they just about match the old surprises firing time record, even though... There are lunatics and defenders spread out amongst all the gun crews. So maybe, maybe Jack's adept leadership is taking them in the right direction. I don't mm-hmm. know. Mike, it, it's probably worth just mentioning that this point off Cape St. Rock is, in in a different context, is kind of the opening of the movie. If you're following nice. along the movie Master and Commander Far Side of the World, the action that happens between the surprise in the Asheron and the book has nothing to do with what's happening, at least right now, in, in the book. But... This is the point just off the coast of Brazil where the surprise, the one skippered by Russell Crowe, kind of kicks off the story in the movie. Meanwhile, Martin takes his first New World Beetle to show Stephen, and he waits until the gunner leaves, um, notices that the gunner leaves Stephen's consultation room looking black and grim. And on inspection, Stephen looks at this beetle and agrees that it's nondescript, nondescript meaning not yet known and catalogued in science. And he remembers that quote that he had been struggling to think of after he read Martin's letter earlier on. And this quote is from Senac de Meillon. This author wrote, Even the best conducted women, les plus sages, have an aversion for the impotent. And going on, old men are despised. So one should conceal one's wounds and hide the crippling deficiencies of life, poverty, misfortune, sickness, ill success. 
People begin by being touched and moved to tenderness by their friend's distress. Presently, this changes to pity, which has something humiliating about it, then to a masterful giving of advice, and then to scorn. Well, <laughs> ouch, that's that's a lot to put on the character of Nathaniel Martin. And I think it's a lot of introspection on behalf of Stephen. And this, it's also this idea of how, how grotesque and despicable old men become. That's the thing, Mike, that's been bugging Jack Aubrey ever since the surgeon's mate and maybe even before. Yeah, definitely. And I love this too. That, that author, not, not real well known, uh, was a writer in France, beginning of the French Revolution, kind of witnessed some things right there and then left for London. So, you know, uh, well done, O'Brien, in terms of some guy that Stephen probably would have read. And would be very accessible to them, even over there in the UK at the time. So fascinating. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're about to go on a bit deeper here, but Moet interrupts them. And Jack wants to know if the crew can drink that water that he had originally barreled in that first very, very short storm. And and Stephen and Martin have a look at it. And, and they're having fun kind of, you know, listing off all the algae and microorganisms <laughs> and and where they might have come from. And it uh and, and Stephen, you know, Stephen, we have this beautiful thing, uh, and we can kind of tell what's on Stephen's mind. Stephen says, pray tell the captain that it will not do, and that he will be obliged to bear up, bear down, bear away for that noble stream, the San Francisco, and fill our cast from its limpid, health-giving billows as they flow between banks covered with a luxuriant vegetation of choice exotics, echoing to the cries of the Tucan, the jaguar, various apes, a hundred species of parrots, and they flying along gorgeous orchids, white, huge butterflies of unparalleled splendor float over a ground strewn with Brazil nuts and boa constrictors. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Only Stephen can see this scene of ultimate beauty, you know, capped off by Brazil nuts and boa constrictors. <laughs> <laughs> it's really beautifully written. And we really tell that Stephen's longing for it. And he really makes us long for it as well. You know, after all the sort of, it, it, it's been quite a dry chapter. It's been about people and tension and uncertainty and situations. And there's like, oh, all this kind of foreboding and unease. And then Stephen comes up with this description of what might lie over the horizon. And we absolutely, our, our mouths water for this description that he's just given us, which is which is a handy metaphor because water is exactly what they don't got. Right. right. So Jack has assumed already that this water that came off the sails could not be drunk. And he'd also therefore inquired if Reverend Martin could use any of the prayers for rain on land to pray for rain on a ship at sea. And this is kind of flipping it round on Martin, who we hear had been praying for calm earlier on when it was a bit rough. Martin says he'll have to consult his texts and find out if that's quite orthodox and let him know tomorrow. I love that. Not quite orthodox. <laughs> Hilarious. When Jack hears this, he thinks, well, we're not going to have to wait. There are dark clouds and there's lightning on the horizon. And the air is filled with this static electricity. We've had lots of storms before, but this is a real moment for enjoying and relishing this description of a gathering storm, static electricity, in particular, this phenomenon called St. Elmo's fire. In the middle watch, that's in the middle of the night, Hollum points out the St. Elmo's fire, these glowing balls of plasma on the jib boom and the spritzel yard. And 
they debate whether they should maybe wake Stephen up to see this sight, and Midshipman Honey decides it's just electrical fluid playing the fool. It's not birds, so he decides not to go and wake Stephen. Um, Mike, this St. Elmo's fire. St. Elmo is the patron saint of sailors. He is said to have continued preaching our St. Elmo when lightning struck right beside him. And St. Elmo's fire is an ion discharge visible as plasma. It creates a purple glow and sometimes lightning flashes coming out of sharp angular objects like masts of sailing ships and also like the wings of airplanes in highly charged atmospheres. There are loads of videos on YouTube and I'm just going to mention, Mike, as a little reference for the millennials on the show, Plasma be damned. Really, we all know St. Elmo's Fire is a killer 80s stadium soft rock anthem by John Parr, but you know. I'll just leave that one there for the teenagers. Right. You can, you can thank us for that earworm for the rest of, uh, you know, go, go, go cue that up, a billboard number one. And now, now I've got it just playing continuously in my head. I love that. Well, Stephen didn't have anything playing continuously in his head because he's down below sleeping soundly. He's got wax crammed deep in his ears and the tincture of laudanum running wild through his system. So remember this drug that he gave up when he married Diana as O'Brien has reminded us a little earlier in this book, he's now rationalized why he should be taking it again. Uh, he needs to be well-rested to do his duty. Well, you know, this this laudanum, it is a, a God-created balm of nature, and it would be insolent pride on his part not to take it. And and after all, you know, it was he's getting ready for St. Abdon's Day. St. Abdon, by the way, a minor saint, we, nobody really knows what he did, believed to be a Persian martyr. So this this is not the day of all days, probably. <laughs> so what we have is the working of an addict's mind here, or the working of all of our, you know, on some level, how we can kind of justify our bad behavior here. But as good as that laudanum is, it doesn't work when the surprise is hit by lightning, which which then in turn sets off seven of her larboard guns. So they end up losing their bowsprit, and Jack sends Alan in the launch. They can't navigate the surprise in her present condition in the dark without a good compass and these shifting estuary shoals. So Jack asks Alan, since he knows this area best, to take the launch, get in there. Alan's going to have a new spar fashioned, and he's going to send the pilot out and then have Jack anchor the surprise two or three miles off the bar and, and you know, meet Alan and the pilot when, uh, well, bring, you know, the pilot will bring them in to meet Alan as he comes back with yeah. the new spar here. So Stephen says, I- I've got a good passing knowledge of Portuguese. Why don't I go along with you? Uh, and, and mm. you know, Ian, as you pointed out, that's something we might want to remember. You know, we're now in Brazil. The locals speak Portuguese, not Spanish. But but I love Alan uh, says, well, you know what? I think I've got that. I, you know, these folks all know me. I know them. But yeah. I'll be happy to take you and Martin along and show you something uncommon in the botanical line. So, oh, can't miss that, right? <laughs> right. So, and, and, and by the way, this, speaking Portuguese, uh, the one bit of Portuguese we hear spoken in the movie is at sort of the equivalent of this point where Paul Bettany, as Stephen Maturin, leans over the side of the surprise and speaks a little bit of Portuguese to, uh, to one of the native traders. Meanwhile, Alan leaves the launch crew, goes for the pilot and tells him to, <laughs> and tells Stephen and the other seamen to mine the alligators. Uh, Martin and Stephen, therefore, go off exploring on a white strand with massive palm trees. And Mike, 
a couple of paragraphs ago, we were encouraged to long for this beautiful tropical vision of the shore of Brazil. And O'Brien wraps up the chapter with this really beautiful description. It wasn't just something uncommon in the botanical line. It was a whole scene. The plants, the palm trees, the flowers. We get this really beautiful cinematic writing from O'Brien. Walking through the dark under the thick palms, it says, they took a few more steps through the palms, reaching the white unshaded strand. To the left hand at the water's edge lay a 20-foot caiman contemplating the gentle stream. And to the right hand, full in the brilliant sun, there stood a scarlet ibis. Wow. Ah, and Stephen thinks, ah, I'm home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's loving that. And we're sitting here going, 20-foot alligator? Gorgeous bird. Yeah. yeah. Left hand and the right <laughs> hand. Here we are. This is this is where O'Brien leaves us at the end of chapter four. You know, it's like the lady or the tiger. Pick a door here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's great. Uh, that, that's a Stephen Maturin kind of poetry for you. Right. So, Mike, uh, after all of the rushing and waiting and the sailing and the doldrums and the thirst and the water and, by the way, the adultery, we're sidelined by a storm what's going to happen to the norfolk while they're waiting for repairs yeah I, you know are, are they finally now that they've had to come in anyway is going to get some water on board you know are stephen and martin going to find anything else here now that they own shore in the new world what's going to happen while they're here uh, what about the animosity amongst the crew our adulterers and stephen and diana this thing going on back home i don't know Ian, I, I, I think we're just going to have to, you know, press on to chapter five next week. What would you say to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next week? Mike, with all my heart. Ah, yes. notes how many people Jack has drowned, uh, how many people Jack has saved from drowning over the years. Yes. Sorry, Jack. Right there.